what is a blessing to be with you all this morning, and we have a lot to get done. I've been overambitious on this sermon, and I learned that in the first hour, and so hopefully we'll make a few quick changes to help this go a little bit faster, smoother, in a good way for you guys this second hour. Um, but to start things off, I want to kind of lay the mindset for what we're trying to accomplish this morning as we uh, embark on a two-part series on the book of Ecclesiastes. So we're going into Ecclesiastes. It's a, it's a heavy book. It's a good book. Uh, it's a wisdom book. And so this week, part one, we're going to deal with the vanities of life and how these vanities are going to try to pull us away or steer us away from living out the calling of the Christian. And so that's going to be part one. Next week, we'll go into part two. So if there are these vanities of life that we're dealing with, then how as a Christian, how do we now live? And how do we now work and be in this world, but not of it? Um, that will be next week is how we're going to do this. And so as we go forward, ooh, is this hot? Um, as we go forward, thinking these things through, two other things that we're going to do here. Um, we're going to set up the book of Ecclesiastes because I want to challenge you to read it this week. Twelve chapters, not a long book, um, but... It is an intense book, and so give yourself a little bit of time, a little space wisdom. So we want to set up a structure for you to read it, and then we also uh, want to do a bit of soul searching as we do this. And so as we do that soul searching, here's the question that I want you to be asking. What keeps us from living out the calling of a Christian? What is it that's keeping us from living out the calling of a Christian. Now, the reason we're addressing that is because this summer, uh, I really believe that was kind of the theme, the call of the Christian. And I'd like you to read with me from 1 John chapter 5 that kind of really lays this out really nice and neat. If you'd read along with me, 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, says, everyone who believes, you're reading with me, right? Okay, just checking. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God this is the book that we started the summer off with pastor Paul and pastor John walking us through these truths for us as Christians and then dr. Vody Bacham going to the next and saying hey if that is what you know and if that's what you believe then what should you do with that? You should go and you should tell. You should tell a world that is dying and a world that is lost about this great God and this Savior. And then Nate Kidder, our missionary, came in and he said, hey, when you go and tell and you give the gospel out, that is great. He says, but we need to then disciple. We need to make disciples of those who we go and tell. Otherwise, we leave them kind of stranded like little sheep that are going to get caught by wolves. He says, because the prosperity gospel has come into Uganda where the gospel had been preached, 
but the people have been left without a really sh- a good shepherd to guide them, and now they're being led astray, and they're being pulled away from what is the real hope and what is the real joy of our faith, and they're getting all these false lies preached to them. And so then Craig Marshall said, hey, you know what? It is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God. And so we give God that it's not works. When we come talk about making disciples and teaching them to observe all that God has commanded, we're not coming to impose works on people to say, hey, this is how you will now be saved. But what we are doing is we're coming to say, because God has saved you, verse 10 says that he has now prepared good things for you to go and do. Not only has he prepared good things for you to go and do, but he's given you a good word to lead you in how you should now live. And this word frees you up so that you can walk through this world and be in it, but not of it. Okay? And then Tim came, came last week and he said, hey, that's what the good life looks like. When you're near God and when you are obeying his commandments, then you are living the good life. But here's my question for us today. What is it that keeps one from living that calling? Why is it that we stray away from these commands to go, to tell, to make disciples, and in the idea of making disciples, to teach them to observe all that God has commanded us? What is it that leads us astray, and what is it that takes away our, um, our vigilance for this calling? Uh, this last spring, I got to go to Washington, D.C. with my son, and I got to go see the Declaration of Independence. And in that hall, there is a four statues that guard it, go around it. And these four statues have these profound truths on them. The first one says, hey, history is prologue, meaning history is where you have to start if you're going to ever move forward. And the second one says, know your history. Because it's saying, hey, listen, if you don't know these things, you are in trouble of repeating them, but also of not really moving things forward. The third statue, as you move around, come to the front, uh, has a picture of a man with plentiful harvest and kids, and it says, if you are going to move forward, you must know what you've come from. You have to know this. And the last statue is this military, mighty soldier standing there with shield and armor and sword, and he says, eternal vigilance is the key to liberty. And that that concept, I mean, it just hit hardcore core with me home, that this is eternal vigilance, to know God, to fear God, to love him, and then to obey his commandments, but then to vigilantly have to continue to fight for that. To continue to have to go before our God and say, God, hold me close. Hold me steadfast. Help me now to go and share that truth with others and lead others to go and do the same. And this is why we come now to the book of Ecclesiastes at the end of the summer. Because here in the book of Ecclesiastes, we are going to deal with what is it that pulls so hard on us. What it is that is trying to lead us astray from following these commands. What is it? that gets into our lives and gets them distracted so that we no longer are living out the calling that God has called of us to go forward and do. And so as we turn into the book of Ecclesiastes, I encourage you to go ahead and turn to it. 
Um, we're going to look through it. We're also, if you've got a device and you want to go pull it up, pull it up on your device. Um, we are now going to deal with the book of Ecclesiastes. Because I want to help give a framework, because I'm challenging you to read it this week. I want to give you a good framework. I want to show you a video to help you understand how the book unfolds and some of the key truths in it before we start. The book of Ecclesiastes. It's part of the Bible's wisdom literature, and it opens with this line. The words of Kohelet, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, in Hebrew, the word Kohelet means someone who has gathered people together. And in this case, it's to learn, so it's often translated in English as teacher. And the teacher is said to be a son or a descendant of King David. And so there are different views about who this figure might have been. Many think that it refers to King Solomon others to maybe one of the later kings of David's line, and still others think that it's actually a later Israelite teacher who has adopted a Solomon-like persona as a teaching aid. Whichever of these views is correct, the key thing is to recognize that the teacher is a character in the book and is different than the author of the book, who remains anonymous. So we do hear the teacher's voice for most of the book, but it's actually a different voice, the author who introduces us to the teacher in the first sentence, and then at the end concludes the book by summarizing and evaluating everything the teacher just said. So the author is someone who wants us to hear all that the teacher has to say, and then help us process it and form our own conclusion. So what does the teacher have to say? Well, the author summarizes the teacher's basic message at the beginning and right at the end, and it's Hevel, Hevel. Everything is utterly Hevel. Now, most English Bibles translate this word hevel as meaningless, but that doesn't quite capture the heart of the idea. In Hebrew, hevel literally means vapor or smoke, and the teacher uses this word 38 times in the book as a metaphor to describe how life is, first of all, temporary or fleeting, like a wisp of smoke, but secondly, also how life is an enigma or a paradox. Like smoke, it appears solid, but when you try and grab onto it, there's nothing there. So there's so much beauty or goodness in the world, but just when you're enjoying it, tragedy strikes and it all seems to blow away. Or we all have a strong sense of justice, but all the time bad things happen to good people. So life is constantly, it's unpredictable, it's unstable, or in the teacher's words, like chasing after the wind. Hevel. Now that's kind of a downer. So why is he saying all of this? The author's basic goal is to target all of the ways that we try to build meaning and purpose in our lives apart from God. And he lets the teacher deconstruct these. So the author thinks we spend most of our time investing energy and emotion in things that ultimately have no lasting meaning or significance. And he lets the teacher give us a hard lesson in reality. You can see this most clearly in the opening and closing poems, which focus first of all on time and then on death. So the teacher says, you can spend your whole life working and achieving because you think that makes your life meaningful. You should really stop and consider the march of time. For all of the human effort that takes place in the world, nothing really ever changes. So sure, we develop technology and we build nations that rise and fall, but go climb a mountain and see if it cares. It was there long before any of us, and it will be here long after. I mean, no one's even going to remember you or anything you did a hundred years from now, but that mountain, it'll still be there. 
and the ocean will still be breaking on the beach, and the sun will still rise and set. And so time will eventually erase you and me and everything that we care about. And if that's not disheartening enough, the teacher also can't stop talking about death all the way through the book, but especially in this poem near the end. He says, death is the great equalizer, and it renders meaningless most of our daily activities. It devours the wise and the fool, the rich and the poor. No matter who you are, what you've done, good or bad, we're all going to die, and it's inescapable. So with these two ideas in hand, the teacher goes on to consider all the activities and false hopes that we invest our lives in to find meaning and significance, like wealth or career or social status or pleasure. So you think working hard is going to make life worth it? Think about the stress and the toll that that takes on you, all the anxiety and the sleepless nights. And by the time you actually earn some wealth, you're going to be too old to enjoy it anyway. And then by the time that you have to pass it on to someone, they may not even be someone who cares about anything that you did. Or maybe you think pleasure is going to make life worth it for you. Go for it. You know, live for your vacations, live for the weekend party, Monday always comes. Hevel, hevel, everything is utterly hevel. So what does the teacher advocate then? That we become pure hedonists or relativists? Well, no, that would be hevel too. The teacher acknowledges the ideas from Proverbs that living by wisdom and the fear of the Lord, that these have real advantages. On the whole, life will probably go better for you. See, but the problem is that even living by wisdom and the fear of the Lord, they're hevel too because they don't guarantee a good life. Good people die tragically, and horrible people live long and prosper. There's just too many exceptions. And so even wisdom is a hevel. Again, not meaningless, but an enigma. Wisdom doesn't work the way you think it should all of the time. So what's the way forward in the midst of all this hevel? And here, paradoxically, the teacher discovers the key to the true enjoyment of life under the sun. It's accepting hevel. It's acknowledging that everything in your life is totally out of your control. About six different times at some of the bleakest moments in his monologue, the teacher talks about the gift of God, which is the enjoyment of simple, good things in life, like friendship or family, a good meal or a sunny day. You can't control these things. You're certainly not guaranteed them, but that's their beauty. When I come to adopt a posture of total trust in God, it frees me to simply enjoy my life as I actually experience it, not as I think it ought to be, because even my expectations about what life ought to be are ultimately hevel, hevel. Everything under the sun is utterly hevel. And so the teacher's words come to a close. Right here at the end, the author speaks up again, and he brings it all to a conclusion. He says, the teacher's words are very important for us to hear. He likens them to a shepherd's staff with a goad, a pointy end, which might hurt when it pokes you. But he says, the teacher is trying to poke you to get you to move in the right direction towards greater wisdom. The author then warns us that you can actually take the teacher's words too far, and you could spend your whole life buried in books trying to answer life's existential puzzles. Don't try, he says. You'll never get there. And so instead, the author offers his own conclusion, and it's this. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of humans, for God will bring every deed into judgment, every hidden thing, whether good or evil. 
And so the author thinks it's good to let the teacher challenge your false hopes and remind you that time and death make most of life completely out of your control. But what gives life true meaning is the hope of God's judgment. The hope that one day God will clear away all of the hevel and bring true justice to our world. And it's that hope that should fuel a life of honesty and integrity before God, despite the fact that I remain puzzled by most of life's mysteries. And that's the wisdom of the book of Ecclesiastes. All right, so you got some reading to do this week. And uh, as you're reading through it, remember it, there is a, a light at the end of the tunnel uh, as you go through. Now, as you're reading through this, understand this book, uh, they do a really nice job of outlining it there. It's not that clean and clear as you read through it. Uh, it's more like a personal diary or a journal. And so as you're reading through this book, understand that the author's thoughts don't just kind of build all the time upon each other. They're kind of here and there and moving around. But within the certain like pieces of it, he will build some really good arguments for what's going on and why you should pay attention to it. Now, this book is listed as one of the wisdom books next to Job and Proverbs, um, but it's approaching it from a unique vantage point. Um, Proverbs tries to approach wisdom from just a general overview of life. And, hey, if you do this and this, then you should anticipate these things to happen. But because we live in a world that's affected by sin, it won't always work out the way you think it should work out. In fact, for those of us that have lived life long enough, you realize oftentimes things don't go the way you planned them to go. And so Proverbs is there to say, hey, here's how it should work, but it's not a promise that it's going to work that way. Job then comes and looks at wisdom and says, hey, let me show you what life looks like when things are down and out. When you're at the end of your rope, and life is miserable, let me now bring to you what wisdom should look like and how you should trust God in these moments. Ecclesiastes is coming at this thing of wisdom from the exact polar opposite. This is now coming from someone who's at the top of the food chain and says, hey, I've got all these good things, and I've experienced life, and I'm going to share with you now from here how I'm looking down on wisdom, and I'm examining everything that I know about what really is worth putting your time and energy into and what maybe you should say, hey, that's just not worth my giving of my life. Um, and that's kind of where this book takes us. So in Ecclesiastes, if you're looking at chapter 1, we're going to pick up at verse 12 to 18. And it says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out wisdom by all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. Those are encouraging words, aren't they? Um, and if your ears got kind of shocked, like, hey, what did this guy just say? Did he just say that God has given humanity a worthless, vain, and unhappy things to do in life? Um, you should be questioning, like, well, wait, what is this? Because I thought God was good. I thought the way that he created things was to be good, and I thought that it was supposed to be done good for those who love him, 
and are called according to his purpose. So what is this idea that all these things are vanity and all these things are worthless and this unhappiness of life? And again, this is the wisdom that the preacher king, as I'm going to call him, is trying to share that without God as a part of the picture, there are a lot of things within this world that utterly of themselves are meaningless. They're either an enigma, a mystery, or they're just totally not of, worth your time and energy. Um, and he says that as I'm wrestling through this life, I'm having to now deal with how I really feel about it. And so I'm personally writing to you. Like sometimes I feel like all this stuff is worthless. And so as he goes through the book, he's going to share with you, like I'm just sharing what's real. Sometimes it feels like, what am I doing here? Um, but then he's going to come back and remind us of the truths that we need to hear. He clarifies his thoughts here in verse 15. And he says, what is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And this term crooked here carries a double meaning. Um, first meaning that I think this context is describing is this idea of kind of this unsolvable labyrinth or kind of a mystery that you just can't get your finger on. And so this idea of crooked is that you got placed into a puzzle and you're trying to straighten the puzzle out to figure out how to get to the end of it, and yet there's always something different into it. You just can't lock it down. It's the idea of trying to know why does God do what he does. Like his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. There are things that we can see and kind of say, okay, I get a straight line from point A to point B, but over here on this issue, I just, I can't make these things connect. I don't get why this happened. Um, and so the author is now trying to deal with these things. And as he's contemplating these tensions in life that all Christians will feel and how he works being in this world but not of it, he's going to ask the tough questions. He's going to ask those questions of why do bad things happen to good people? Why is the wicked getting away with evil and the righteous going through heartache while they're doing good? He's going to take the life that we live each day as we pull up our phones and look at the news or get on the TV and see what's taking place in the world. And he says, when you have to wrestle with the ugliness of life, like the massacre shootings that have been happening, he's like, how do you now handle these things? He's going to take what happened this summer to our church when we lost our dear brother Luke. And he's going to say, like, how do you wrestle with a brother in Christ who's going to serve on the mission field, and yet all of a sudden his life seems to be taken away meaninglessly? And so... These questions are things that he wants us to get into and deal with. We are going to deal with them next week. And that's not a cop-out. It's just because the way the book of Ecclesiastes is set up, he doesn't get into these understandings until about chapter 7. Um, he starts the book off dealing with these vanities of life that he says, I want you to wrestle with these things that distract so many of us in how we live and what is really worth your time, your energy, and your focus? He's like that shepherd at the end who's poking you with a goat and saying, hey, really, is that worth your time? Hey, really, is that worth all your stress and care in life? Is this really what you want to do?
So we want to dive into these vanities, because these vanities are what I believe keep us as Christians from living out our calling. Without God overseeing these things, they distract us from going, from telling, and from making disciples, teaching them to observe all that God has created. And so what we have here, the second meaning to this um, word crooked is this idea of sin. We have a sin issue. Proverbs 11.3 says, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. So it shows how this crookedness relates to sin and how it's deceiving. It says in Proverbs 28.18, Whoever walks in integrity will be delivered, but he who is crooked in his ways will suddenly fall. And so he who is sinful or who is deceptive in his ways will suddenly fall. Sin is messing everything up and has turned all that was to be good on its head. And because of this sin issue, there is a lot lacking within our lives and within this world. Not only is there a lot lacking, but this sin issue is continually keeping Christians, I believe, from living out their calling. Because instead of turning to the Lord in repentance of our sin and seeking to fully fear God and to walk in obedience in all our ways, many of us try to fill these lacking things, these voids, with things that are vanity. Things that utterly are meaningless. And so let's look at a few of the things that he brings up. The first thing that he addresses here uh, is vanity of wisdom. And so verse 16 to 18 of chapter 1 says, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Now, take that in real quick. He said, not only have I really challenged myself to know what is the right thing to do, the good thing to do, the wise thing to do, but he says, because I'm looking at this world and I'm watching all the things that happen in it, and I realize, hey, the real wise person died, but yet the guy over there who hardly did anything died as well. And the person over there that acted like a total idiot, they died as well. So is there something to what those two guys over there did that maybe this guy should have learned or should have thought about? And so he says, not only have I tried wisdom in its fullness, but I actually went over and I even tried foolishness and I tried madness to see like, hey, does this have any value or can this satisfy life? And he says, I perceive that this also is a striving after the wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. And so this idea of this vanity of wisdom, I think is trying to speak to a couple things in our lives. One, those who really are pushing to say, hey, I'm going to be smarter than the next person in the room. Uh, I'm going to know more because I'm going to build myself up in this knowledge. Um, most people find themselves going into arrogance at that point. And so this arrogance then leads them to think, nobody else knows. I know. I, I alone really have this thing together. And, and nobody else can really understand the complexities of my mind and how they've stretched to the nth and understood what's really going on here. Um, I can tell you as a pastor in counseling, we see people that have this kind of mindset all the time. 
no, no, I, I know the truth. And if you only could see and understand the way that my mind thinks, you would realize that I've got this thing right and you've got this thing wrong. And this arrogance then leads them into foolishness really fast. Um, we see that how this arrogance, if you take this arrogance and you don't have God somehow coming and corralling it and putting it under restraint, uh, this arrogance, as Roman 1 says, it leads them to suppress the truth of God. It leads them to say, hey, you know what, there is no God, and we're not going to have to deal with these things. And the truth is they, they go this way because they don't want to have to then deal with the realities of what would come if God really exists. And so their sinful nature is going to push them to push God out of the way so that they don't have to do, deal with the judgment of what is going to happen when this world is done. Now, within the Christian mindset, our framework, for those of us that really have believed in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, this same stuff happens. This idea of arrogance still comes around because we have people that say, well, I've been saved since I was a little, little boy or little girl, and I've been to church all my life, and I've read the Bible so many times. I am smarter than you, and I understand this thing better than you. And, and they become divisive in the way that they want to go about using God's word. And this is why we have certain people that, you know, want to say, hey, our church is better than your church because our theology is better than your theology. And instead of being willing to really, like, come alongside people and work through Scripture with each other and talk about things so that we have iron sharpening iron, we instead just want to, you know, kick people to the curb or destroy people um, in how we bring things to the table. I think it also goes into play when we think about those that we need to go and tell Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Because I think some of us think, well, in our wisdom, we know those who are ready to hear this truth. And so we look around this world and we say, well, that person's not really ready to hear it. Look at their lifestyle. Look at how they're kind of handling things. I would love to tell them, but they're not ready for it. And, and we, we fall into this lie that we've told ourselves because Honestly, that's probably the person that needs to hear it most is the person that we see as like, oh, they're not ready for it. Um, or we go the opposite spectrum and we say, well, I don't, I don't know if I know this enough. How do I know if I'm going to really be able to answer all their questions or defend this thing? And so we take the opposite spectrum of what wisdom could be. And when we go through Scripture and read Scripture, when Jesus would save people, those people that didn't know anything else about him we're the ones running and proclaiming the most. Look at this Jesus who saved me. Look at what he can do. And people would turn and repent of their sins and come to our Lord. And so this vanity of wisdom, if it's not been guarded in Christ, if it's not been guarded with God overseeing it, it, it pulls in so many, so many ways that lead us away from God. 1 Corinthians 1, 20 to 25 talks about how where is the one who is wise, and where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, and it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and to Greeks. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
So what is it that keeps us from going and telling the world that is lost that needs to hear or going alongside brothers and sisters and building them up as disciples? He says, well, one thing could be this vanity of wisdom. It could get you just going after all kinds of knowledge that has no value, that you're trying to understand these certain mysteries that have no real truth or claim to things, and you're missing out on the one true thing that would really help guard you and lead others to know Jesus Christ. He goes on to then talk about the vanity of self-indulgence and the vanity of pleasure, the idea of the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh. How many of us have ever found ourselves um, at a TV screen with a clicker in our hand, flipping and just flipping and just flipping and sitting there for hours, flipping because we're, we're looking for something that will satisfy, something that will maybe motivate or encourage us or excite us, and, and there just seems to be nothing that can ever do or, or really take hold. Or maybe you're on your phone and you're going through your trollings that you're doing on people, Instagram or Facebook, and binge-watching Netflix, and re- all of a sudden you realize, like, hey, two, maybe four, maybe eight hours of your day have gone. Um, it's vanity, meaningless. Like when time could have been spent loving on your family that is around you, when time could have been spent going out to those who really need to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Like he said, these things, these things are vanity, and yet they, they grab at us and they cling at us and they try to pull us. The idea of the desires of the flesh, those good things in life that you think like, hey, I just want to have a good vacation with my family. And so like I'm going to put in extra hours just so that I can build up the amount of money so we can go spend it and have this great vacation. But we've not taken count of maybe what did all those hours cost on the way to get there? And what did we lose out on? And did we even look at the people that we were working with as people that need to know Christ? Or were they just a means to an end to get to this thing? Um, And so he says all these things, they're vanity. And he says if you want to know why they're vanity... He says that ultimately you're going to find this thing out because as you get older, you're going to now deal with life in a different way. He says, go to the aged. This is Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1. It says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come, the years that will draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Like, I have just tipped the scale on this one. I am nowhere near this days of evil to the fullest extent. But I wake up certain mornings and I say, my body doesn't feel right. I hurt in a way that I didn't hurt before. And he says, as the days get longer and darker, you will find that there will be loss of hearing, loss of sight, loss of appetite, loss of teeth, loss of desires. He says, these are the things that are coming for us as humanity. Why? Because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners will be going about the streets, and the spirit will return to the God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And so some of you may be getting a little bit heavy here and say, like, you know what, this is just depressing. Like, I, I'm done. Let's just, let's move on. Let's have something fun here, because, like, this is life. And, and he says, yeah, you know what, that's the next thing let's talk about. Let's talk about foolishness and laughter. He's like, because many of us don't want to have to deal with the hardships of life. And so we want to move on and just enjoy things. And he says, this too is foolishness. He says, if you go to the house of laughter, 
He's like, it leads you away from God. Because at the house of laughter, everything's great. Everything's fine. The world is a beautiful place. Everyone's happy people. We're all just going to go have a good time, and everything's going to be okay. And he says, but no one's dealing with the reality of, no, one day you too will die. One day these things, these little fleeting moments of pleasure, these things will be done and over. What will you do then when this is gone? And he says, you instead really should go to the house of the mourners. You should go to the place where the funerals are at. Because in those times, in those places, you take real lock and stock of what's going on in your life. You actually think about, okay, this is going to happen someday. And, and when this happens, what is going to happen to me? And how am I going to deal with this thing? And then he goes on to say, you know, some of you, you know, in this house of laughter, you, you've associated it with alcohol. Because that ends up making a lot of people happy is what they think and they think hey you know what if it's not going to make me happy if I'm not a happy drunk at least I can like buzz away my thoughts for the day or I can drown out my sorrows and he says this too is vanity and we know that we've, we've all been around scenes and know things of people that have overused and abused alcohol and have gotten themselves trapped in its grips, and how those things do not lead to joy, satisfaction, or peace. How really instead they, they cause more heartache, hurt, pain, because the truth is you can drown away your sorrow for the moment, but when you wake up, the sorrow is still there. It's not going anywhere. And so whether it's alcohol, whether it's a drug, whether it's some other means that you're using to cope with, he says all these things are vanity, because they have no eternal hold. They have no eternal promise. No eternal. But these are the things in our Christian walk in life that will lead us astray from fulfilling our purpose in Christ. From going, from telling, from making disciples, and from walking with them so that they would then observe all that God has commanded of us. And so he says, this now... Because of these vanities, we need to now come to a conclusion. What are we going to do? How will we now go live in this world but not be of it? And so he summarizes his book here. Next week we'll come back and we will deal with the hard questions of life. We'll deal with um, how do I now do this? If I'm a Christian, I've got to live in this world, and you're saying all these things are vanity. I can't have fun anymore. I can't have laughter anymore. I can't. That's not what I'm saying, just so you know. All right, But it, after you wrestle with this book and you start wrestling through these tensions, we'll start talking about how does God's word then say, how should you now go and live next week? But he says, here's what you should know. Sum it all up. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. And these verses should sober you up. Like, if you didn't hear these verses, then hear them again. God will bring into judgment every secret thing, whether good or evil. Because I don't know about your life, but if you look at my life and the secret things that you don't know about me, it's not a very pretty picture. And so when I look at those things and I say, hey, those things have to go before God, a holy God who sees all things, who knows all things, who is now going to judge all things, those things sober me up really quick to say, I don't want to experience that moment 
of life. And so, for those who know Christ, here's the hope that we have. You don't have to. That's why we come to the communion table today. We remember what Jesus Christ did for us and how he paid that penalty so that we no longer have to give judgment for all those messed ups and outright disobedience to our God. And we give him thanks and we give him praise. And then we find strength because Paul says this in Philippians 3. He says, hey, I don't think about the things I've done in the past because if I think about them, he's like, I'd be self-condemned. I'd be depressed. I would then crush myself and I couldn't move anything forward. Instead, what I do, I look forward to the prize for which God has placed ahead of me to go. He says, and I run the race which he has now marked out for me, and I'm looking to the author and perfecter. I'm looking to Jesus who laid down his life so that I could be set free. And that, dear Christians, is how we now avoid the vanities of life a little bit, and we start moving ourselves forward. And so as we take this week, and I'm praying that God will really work on your hearts to soul search hey, am I falling into these trappings? Am I falling into the trapping of wisdom? Am I falling into the trapping of self-pleasure? Am I falling into the trapping of laughter and foolishness or of alcohol? We're going to deal with two others next week, wealth and honor. Are these things holding me, and are they keeping me so focused on them that I've lost sight of who my God is? And if I see that happening, then what will set me free? And we're going to have a moment of reflection right after I'm done preaching here now. And we're about to listen to the song, Is He Worthy? Because as I thought through, like, what is it that's going to now spur me on to go to do love and good deeds? What is it that's going to motivate me as a Christian to walk the calling that God's called? It's when I really wrestle with, is he worthy? Is he worthy of all honor? Is he worthy of all glory? Is he worthy of everything that I have? Am I willingly going to lay it down for him? Because I say, you know what? Above all things, God, you are worthy. And that's the question that I want you guys to wrestle with in this next moment as we sing. Let me pray for us. Father God, this morning as we come now and we look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith, God, the one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, God is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God, I pray that you would help us to turn to you and say, you alone are worthy. Worthy of all honor, worthy of all glory, worthy of all praise. You are the one who is worthy so that I don't get caught up in the vanities of life, but that I am spurred to go and to tell this world about how great is our God. And God, as we wrestle through these things, because they're real, and as we wrestle these, these things because, God, that is just where we're at in life. God, I pray that we would be honest with you and that, God, in our honesty, we would then confess our sins and we would turn and repent so that we could be forgiven of our sin and we could then cling to you the way that you've called us to be near you. In Jesus' name, amen.